As mentioned on our show two weeks ago, we had a chance to sit down with actor, producer, and director Norman Lloyd after his appearance in The Undecided Molecule at the Beverly Grand Hotel in Los Angeles. Mr. Lloyd graciously had agreed to chat with us about his seven-decade career in theater, film, radio, and television following the recreation of a celebrated radio play by Norman Corwin. Unfortunately, we had an ironic failure of our recording equipment. Ironic, given that this was a conference of the Association of Recorded Sound Collections, a group with many sound engineer members. We did get some audio on that, thanks to Radio Parallax's L.A. associate Bruce Bronstein, which you heard two weeks ago. But thankfully, Norman Lloyd agreed to chat with us again. So we packed up and headed to Hollywood. We were most keen to talk with Mr. Lloyd, given his remarkable history. He worked with Orson Welles in the Mercury Theater, with Alfred Hitchcock in both motion pictures and television, as well as his friend Charlie Chaplin in the classic film Limelight. You may remember him as Dr. Auslander in the fine TV series St. Elsewhere, perhaps in the title role in Alfred Hitchcock's Saboteur. The iconic ending to that film was later part of an attraction on the Universal Studios tour. He was also the subject of a documentary film, Who is Norman Lloyd, done in 2007. I had a chance to see Mr. Lloyd on stage in the California Artists Radio Theater production of Leviathan in 2009. That was an event honoring authors Ray Bradbury as well as Norman Corman, both of whom we've had in this program, so it was a great pleasure to attend that event. Uh, Lloyd had worked professionally with both men, along with with Jean Renoir, Joseph Cotton, John Houseman, Denzel Washington, Robin Williams, and so many others. As you might imagine, we were very pleased to rejoin Mr. Lloyd at the famous Hollywood eatery, Musso and Frank's Grill, and say, welcome back to Radio Parallax, Norman Lloyd. When we spoke last time, you had just finished The Undecided Molecule with, with, um, with author Norman Corwin in attendance, and you were joined on the stage by many great uh, performers. Bill Proctor had the role that went to Groucho Marx in the original, and yes. I, I'm a fan of both those funny guys, and I wonder how you would compare their two performances. Totally different. <laughs> Groucho made everything his own. It became Groucho. Mm -hmm. In addition to Groucho, we had Vinnie Price, Sylvia mm -hmm. Sidney, Robert Benchley, Keenan Wynn, and myself. The most amusing thing I remember from the whole thing was the first reading around a table, a round table like this one. Vinnie Price was reading and uh, he had a line and then he came across the the line was and then he came across the buggle 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 b-a-g-e-l he had never seen bagel and print and he kept saying buggle so finally he turned to norman Cohen and said uh, norman what is a buggle and before norman could answer groucho said you don't know what a buggle is it's what a soldier blows to wake up in the morning. <laughs> and then I heard him inviting Benchley to dinner after the rehearsal. And he said, now, Bob, you drive down Wiltshire Boulevard. You come to a street called Warner. You turn right. There's a church on the corner. You go past the church. You know how to go past the church, don't you, Bob? <laughs> oh, Groucho was such a delight. I got to know him, my wife and I got to know him uh, later on, and uh, we used to go to his home, have dinner, and then watch, you bet your life, yeah. 
he'd do a reruns of them all and the loudest laughter came from Groucho. He was yeah. knocking himself out laughing at these things. <laughs> Groucho, I always felt I was in his good graces because he would give me a cigar. And I felt that was the, the ultimate gesture. Well, Mr. Lloyd, you joined Orson Welles and John Houseman from the Mercury Theater's Julius Caesar back in 1937. They're, they're still talking about it. And, but and there was a history before that. Tell us that history. I've noticed that on most interviews, or virtually all, they start with the Mercury Theater. I was a veteran at that point, okay. 1937. I started with Eva Legallian and her Civic Repertory Theater in 1932. And then after various performances with companies and so on, what you might call little theater companies, or not little theater, little off-Broadway companies. This was all in New York City. After a couple of years of that, in 1935, I appeared with the great French actor, Pierre Frenet, in a play called Noah. But he was the finest actor I ever appeared with or saw on the stage. Really? He was a great actor. He was the great Cyrano of his time. You may remember him from Grand Illusion. Well. If I was asked to name the five greatest pictures, that certainly would be one of them. It was directed by Jean Renoir. Now, at the time we were doing Noah, he uh, was in the midst of a romance with the great French actress, or great star, Yvonne Printemps. She had been married to the great French star, Sacha Guitry, who was international fame. And Frenet had been married, and they both got divorces for the most sophisticated grounds I've ever heard. Mutual adultery. <laughs> I offer this to you ladies in case you have need of it in the future. I'm ready, yeah. <laughs> It's a good title. Yeah, good isn't that a great title? That would be a good title. Yeah, like the undecided molecule, exactly. mutual adultery, it's all, yeah. Orson Welles to go to your question, was on the Federal Theater at the time. He was st wanted to start a classical repertory theater with John Houseman, or the two of them on the start. They left the Federal Theater under duress. They had a play coming in, a musical play, by Mark Blitzstein called The Cradle Will Rock. And the, the authorities in charge of the Federal Theater said, you can't, you can't do this play. As a consequence of that, they left. Eventually, it was done in the Mercury. There's been like five movies made about this era, the WPA and all that, Julius yeah. Caesar. Well, none any good. <laughs> the last one, me and Orson Welles. I, I wanted to ask you about that. Because I have to ask you. I, and I, their depiction of me is insulting. It was insulting and quite a burlesque, I must say. It was not. I don't think they got you at all. First of all, <laughs> I had red hair, and this guy had another color. I won't have it. You think Christian Mackay... Not having been there, it looked like he was doing a good job of Orson Welles. Did you think? I should uh, make a footnote. He did a brilliant job. No one could ever have done a job of playing Orson as well as he did. Brilliant. I thought the rest of it was terrible. Orson in the, in the, in the film comes across as such this Machiavellian figure, this huge ego and a manipulator of people, and I was just wondering, was he like that, was it like that? He was human. He was 
all the things you mentioned, if need be. Okay. He was also very amusing. He had great charm. He he was funny. He we're not even talking about his talent, which uh -huh. to me he was the greatest directorial talent in the theater that we've ever had. And one of the great ones in films, although there are others along with him. But he was all of those things. He was um, very individual, in many ways undisciplined. He, for example, as a young actor, was cast by Catherine Cornell and Guthrie McClintic and Romeo and Juliet to play Mercutio. And he was so undisciplined that they demoted him to Tybalt. <laughs> By undisciplined, I mean late rehearsals or not showing up and so on. And at the Mercury, there's a bare stage and just some levels. And when he did Brutus's oration about Antony, he had constructed a great pulpit, very tall, maybe 14 feet high from which he would deliver his speech, and after him, Antony would deliver his speech. The point of this is discipline. He would deliver the speech, Brutus's speech, and then he would descend, and most of the, all the lighting was around this podium, but confined to the speaker up 14 feet high. All the extras were down below in the dark. Orson would descend, and since it was a bare stage, he would go out the stage door, down to the corner, there was a restaurant called Longchamp, <laughs> where he would order a drink. And then he would rush back in time, right after Antony's oration, and with the mob moving back in, he'd get into the mob and move himself back. He, they didn't, contribute to discipline very much because after a while he would order two drinks <laughs> and then strike up a conversation with a young lady who would be at the bar. So sometimes he was a little late as a consequence of which he would have to come through the front of the theater. He couldn't get back in through the come and he'd go pounding down the aisle up through the fire door back onto the stage and go. Uh, in addition to which <laughs> We, in Shoemaker's Holiday, the stage manager reported, uh, uh, was displeased with the behavior, particularly of Joe Cotton and myself, and uh, reported to Orson, or got the report back to Orson, that we were misbehaving. Orson came down to discipline us, and it took the following form. You have the stage you would go over stage right near the wings and suddenly you felt all this liquid on you. It was Orson with a bottle of Ballantine scotch and he was pouring it and throwing it on you. So you'd get out of there and you'd work your way over to the stage left where he had arrived and he would throw it on you there. What I'm getting at, his discipline was to soak us in scotch. So you was, see how disciplined was, was that effective? he was. Was that effective? <laughs> But he, he was doing so many radio shows that he was the first guy to commission an ambulance. And so he would get from CBS to NBC or vice versa. He'd get in the ambulance, they'd go, he'd go tearing through the streets, and he'd make it to the other show. 
when Wells came west with the Mercury players, uh, Citizen Kane came out of that. But I'm gathering you had a little bit, you sort of had a falling out with him at that point. You didn't want to take part in that project, or oh, you mean with Orson? With, with Citizen Kane? What Orson did, he had this wonderful deal with RKO. He combined the two companies into one and brought us all out to Hollywood to make a picture of Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness. I won't go into too much detail on that, except that the net result was the studio wouldn't make it. So Orson gathered us, I see the meeting vividly, he gathered us in his office, the entire group of actors, and he said they've decided not to do the picture, and I have another picture in mind, and I would ask you all to stay here till I make another deal. So we then went our way, and since we weren't being paid for staying there, uh, my wife and I decided we'd go back to New York, and if need be, he'd send for us. But since that decision of ours proved to be not to Watson's liking, never, he never said anything about it, uh, I was not in Citizen Kane. However, I got a great break because almost an overlap, not quite, but right in there, John Houseman, who by that time had left Wells and was a vice president of international affairs for David O. Selznick, was asked by Hitchcock, who was under contract to Selznick, if he knew of a young actor who was unknown to picture audiences to play a saboteur. And Jack Houseman recommended me. Which is quite a way to break into pictures. So, you, get, you get the title role in the Hitchcock picture. In the Hitchcock picture. So, I, if I'd been around um, Citizen Kane, I don't think I would have gotten that. I'd like to plug the DVD for that film for our listeners, too, because you have the, you're in that extra section that talks at great length about the film, and, and it's, it's, so it's wonderful these DVDs have these, these extras. And one that really got me was in a tale you told, Hitchcock wanted film of the uh, the line of Normandy, a real life example of, of sabotage, and then and then stuck it in the picture and interspersed with your you're looking out at it. So it's really well done. That was all Hitch. When the Normandy capsized in port, everyone thought that it was sabotage. Also, Hitch immediately heard about it and ordered the footage from Universal Newsreel, and he was going to use it which he does, as sabotage in the picture. The government was trying to prevent him from doing that. They were saying, it's not sabotage, and, and Hitch was told he couldn't do it, he did it. But you, you, your character comes to a bad end, a very famous bad end in Hollywood history, on the Statue of Liberty, and my understanding, Gailey, you may know, I think Universal Tours you, use that as part of one of the attractions at one point. You can substitute. I am in Orlando, to... I may be yeah. still here. Yeah, yeah, you know. It's very funny, because when they wanted to have it as one of the attractions, mm -hmm. nobody remembered or knew how it was done. So they came to me. I charged them a fee. <laughs> as you should. <laughs> and told them how it was done. That became one of the attractions. What they did with the attraction is, since there was a contraption initially of a pipe with a saddle on it, a seat on it, on which I sat, and 
where the camera went up and I did all sorts of beautiful balletic movements in simulating a fall. They then con built that contraption and let tourists sit in it and pretend that they were doing the fall. Over me was a platform suspended from the ceiling of the stage, which was the largest stage at Universal then, stage 12. There was a square hole in the middle of it. The camera looked through that hole. On a cue, the platform, with the camera grinding, went up to the ceiling, many takes ground at different speeds, went up to the ceiling, pulling away from me as I did these movements of falling. And that's how our shot was done. And they painted in the bay and the, and the harbor and all that stuff. Well, it's, it's a hell of a special effect. Well, Mr. Wood, I, I want to ask you about one film, the only film, in which the two greatest silent film comics, Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, appear together. A, a film that you're in. It's, Charlie, it's Chaplin's last film in America, Limelight. Uh, I have to ask what it was like working with, with both of those men. Well, you're talking about magic. You're talking about motion pictures on its highest level. Chaplin was a genius, remarkable, extraordinary on so many levels. And Buster Keaton, I scarcely knew. I, I just knew him on that picture, and I shouldn't say knew him because he was very silent most of the time. And they do in it, as you know, a great routine, which is just fabulous. When we did that last scene, the thing that I think is so memorable is this. The last scene is Charlie's death scene. And he falls off the stage into a big bass drum. The action continues, they lift the drum up on the stage, and they put it on a kind of carrier, which in this case was a what we call a western dolly in those days. And he's put there, and now the action is that he's then rolled off stage. Now the camera is in front of him, pulling back as he is being rolled off. There were a couple of extras who were moving the western dolly. But in front of him are Buster Keaton, Nigel Bruce, Sidney Chaplin, Charlie's son, and myself. And as we pull back, Charlie is playing unconscious. Well, he can't see the camera. He's directing the picture. And as it pulls back, I hear talk, muttered, very silent, mask like that. It was Buster Keaton, and he was saying to Chaplin, "It's all right, Charlie. You're right in the center of the gun. Yeah, you're right in the center of the video. Hold it. Don't move. Yeah, yeah. Hold up. Just hold that. Hold up. Keaton directing Chaplin. <laughs> I thought it was the greatest moment in the history of film. <laughs> A friend of mine knew somebody over there at Chaplin's old studio, and, and, and I managed to get a little mini tour one day with, with your co-star, Phil Proctor. Proctor. He came and joined us, and was quite great seeing Chaplin's famous prints still in the cement there. In, in the, His uh, footprints. They're still there, yeah. yeah. 
I guess he drove people a little bit nuts in how he would direct. My understanding is that he would tell people exactly how to do it, and then you were supposed to imitate the, his example. Not in every instance. I think it's fair to say that when he directed Nigel Bruce and myself, he was, we were very free. He was able to do anything. When he directed Sidney, his son, and Claire Bloom, it was, it was what you described. He wanted it a certain way, and that's the way it was going to be. So he learned that Marlon Brando didn't take take to that style very very well. He wanted to. Uh... I visited that set in London, uh -huh. and Marlon took me aside at some point and said, "I don't get his message." That was easy to see in the work of the two men. I, I understand that uh, people would ask Hitchcock. We used this quote on our show last week that they would ask him, "What's my motivation?" And he would say. Your paycheck. Uh, who said that? Hitchcock, supposedly. <laughs> well, the story I know is he was directing a, an actor in a picture, one of his pictures. The actor was a major star, and at some point Hitch told the actor to sit down. And uh, the actor who was versed in the actor studio method, Stanislavski method, said, why do I sit at that point? And Hitchcock said, to put your ass in the seat of the chair. That's being a director. That was the first of what I hope will be several installments of our talk with legendary actor Norman Loy, the guy that can tell you first-hand experiences with Orson Welles, Charlie Chaplin, and Alfred Hitchcock. is a guy we just love talking to. Lending authenticity to that interview, which was conducted at the Musso and Frank Grill in Hollywood, were the blenders in the background making the martinis, which according to the Hollywood Travel Guide are considered the best in LA, perhaps. Uh, we were also joined by BBC Hollywood correspondent Gail Murphy at the table as well, as our associate Bruce Bronstein has been a great value to us in getting us guests down in LA. I'm Douglas Everett, and we need a brief break, so let's take one.